Thank you all for being here tonight. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nicole Dunn, and um, I give these uh, sort of teaching style talks two or three times a year. So thank you for being here to support me in this endeavor. <laughs> um, I've entitled this talk tonight, Watering the Seeds of Positive Bias. So, the world, our world, needs more well-contented people who are generating qualities of ease, of joy, of kindness, understanding, love, and connection, who are then able to extend those qualities to others. Our world needs more people who are able to stay grounded and well-balanced amid life's seas and swells of difficulties and challenges and sorrows and matters of injustice. And it's important that we know on a really deep level that we all have this capacity for generating these qualities of being and for being able to extend those qualities to others. We all have this capacity. So before I continue, I want to offer sort of a footnote to this talk. Uh, and I'm going to read it. This is something I came up with myself, but I'm going to read it from my notes here because I um, don't want to just rely on my memory and I want to read it verbatim. So in support of our friends who are navigating amid the effects of addiction or mental illness, in all of its varied forms for which there is a wide spectrum. And an effort to help reduce the social stigmas and deeply ingrained misunderstandings when it comes to issues concerning mental health. Please know that while the things I'll be speaking to in this talk have the potential to be of use and benefit for all of us, regardless of our circumstance, it's also really important to mention that the teachings and tools available in the context of mindfulness should not be looked upon as a means of soul support when addiction or mental illness factors are at play. Yeah. Many of us will also need to seek further tools in other areas of our life, such as in the medical or therapy community or in a support group. So if you are someone for whom addiction, depression, bipolar or anxiety disorder, self-harm, eating disorders, or any other form of chronic mental unwellness is an ongoing occurrence for you, please know that you are not alone and that to seek medical intervention is often a matter of vital importance. Yeah. So please don't let our ignorant social stigmas and shame stand in your way of getting the help you need from other means of support. Bless the way you give us a bell, please. So we as individuals and as a collective, we have a very strong propensity 
for negative bias. So the lenses and the filters through which we see the world around us um, are quite distorted. They're cloudy and they're steeped in negative bias to a high degree. And so to help illustrate what I'm talking about when referring to negative bias, um, let us imagine that we're sort of taking a, a walk in our neighborhood in the middle of summer and we come across a new community garden plot of which we wonderfully have in great abundance here in Missoula. Uh, gardening season is approaching. And we're taking a walk and we come across this garden and we stop and stand and survey this new lovely community garden. Negative bias is such that when we look out on this garden, this lovely garden, what we see primarily or maybe even entirely are the weeds that are growing in it. So we look out over this lovely garden, it's the middle of summer, despite the fact that the plants are all in full bloom and fruiting and flowering um, and in their heyday, um, negative bias directs our attention to the weeds that are growing. We look at that picture and we see what's wrong. What's wrong with this picture? What's, 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 what needs tending to? What's quote unquote broken or needs fixing? And our capacity or our tendency towards positive bias for many of us is very small. Um, it's very weak and it's undernourished. And so our attention is not being directed towards the plants and the, the lovely things growing in the garden of life. So translated to how we see the world, we look out on the world and what we might see primarily are all the things that are wrong with it, quote unquote, all the things that need fixing, all the weeds that are growing. And part of the trouble is that we think that the weeds aren't supposed to be in the garden. Yeah, that they're separate. And that's not the case. The weeds are also part of the garden, but so are all the plants and the flowers growing too. So just as in the world around us, there are, there are difficulties. There are weeds growing in the garden of life. And there's also a lot of amazing, awesome stuff. There's great bounty growing in the garden of life too. So it's important to know that uh, when I talk about watering the seed of positive bias, it's not that we want to ignore the weeds that are growing, right? As a gardener especially, we know that we need to tend to those weeds so that our plants can be victorious in their endeavors, yeah? Uh, we want to tend to those weeds. So it's not that we need to ignore the weeds that are growing in the garden. It's that we need to not ignore the plants that are growing in abundance. It's, it's that we need to not ignore the flowers that are growing in life because those are happening too, simultaneously. They're both going on. And we need to be in touch with both elements at the same time. Yeah. Mm. So there are uh, a number of obstacles sort of in our path in terms of uh, practicing mindfulness, of practicing being the, a well-contented person, generating these qualities of ease enjoy of watering our seed of positive bias. And those obstacles come largely in the form of false views. Yeah, and they stand in our way of being able to make progress sometimes. And three of the largest uh, obstructions that I see for us collectively are as follows. So the first one is that we have the tendency to think that our lives are fixed in place that we were sort of dealt a certain set of cards, and that's it. Now, that's, those are our cards forever, and there's no changing that. 
that we're, we're locked in place. So that's one of the obstacles in our way. Another one is that we think that happiness is something that is obtainable by external factors coming into some sort of alignment. Right? So that means thinking, OK, we'll, I'll be happy when I get this degree and graduate from university. I'll be happy when I get this job, this type of job, when I make this amount of money, when I find this romantic partner and have this many kids and have this many gadgetries. Yeah? Um, and it's not that these things are inherently a bad thing to, to have as goals. You can want to have a degree. If, if that's your calling, go do that. That's great, right? If you want to be married and have kids, go do that. That's, that's wonderful. Um, the trouble is when we hinge our happiness and, and put it on those things and wait for it to happen sometime in the future, right? When we put off our happiness now until something happens. So I'll be happy when fill in the blank. That's, that's where the difficulty comes. That's where the tension and the struggle happens. I'll be happy when I get this degree. I'll be happy when I get this type of job, right? We keep putting it off until the future. And the thing, when we do that, the thing is, is the happiness then jumps to something else. It, it tends to ha do that. Um, when we get the degree, we're like, oh, yes, I got this degree. I went through all these wheels of schooling. And then you're like, oh, now I need a job. <laughs> I'll be happy when I get a job, <laughs> you know, and then it, it keeps going. Right? It's ongoing, perpetual cycle. The third um, obstacle that I think might be the largest one, uh, in my own experience anyway, is that we think that there exists such a thing as an insignificant moment. Meaning, we think there are moments that are so small and inconsequential that they don't cause impact. They don't cause any effect on our lives or the lives of others. So there are three counter-teachings that I'll offer that will help us to unfurl these particular obstacles that can be of benefit and service to us. <clears throat> the first one is that we are of the nature to change. We are of the nature to change, and this is really good news. Yeah, We know from the realm of uh, neuroscience that our brain, our wiring, uh, in large part is not concretized. It's not set in stone. We have the ability to uh, reroute our ways of thinking and being yeah, and seeing the world. That is within our capacity. I'm not saying it's easy, right? Because we've built up a certain way that we engage with the world. We've done that over a lifetime, right? Um, but we have that capacity to change. And our neuro, the neural pathways in our brain can change. They're elastic. Yeah. Um, so we are of the nature to change. The second one um, is that happiness is an inside job. Yeah. And this is really good news because um, our quality of life is up to us. And that's good news because as long as we think our quality of life and our happiness is up to someone else or something else outside of ourselves, eventually we're going to be highly disappointed because we don't have any control over anyone else or anything else outside of ourselves, right? Um, so knowing that happiness is, a, is an inside job is it's good news, yeah? Um, we have the capacity to generate a certain quality of happiness that will provide a foundation for us to build a, a life of, well, of being well-contented on that will carry with us regardless of what's going on around us. Yeah, so there's kind of two, 
we can kind of look at it as sort of two types of happiness. There's that that happiness that comes from, you know, you see a friend you haven't seen in a long time, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. This is awesome. You know, or you have like a really good meal or you go to a really good concert or, you know, something happens like that and you get this burst of elation and it's fantastic, right? There's that kind of happiness and that might be where we stop thinking about like, oh, that's what happiness is. But there's another kind of happiness um, that in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh we might refer to as true happiness. That is this foundational element, this quality um, that we can situate ourselves in and develop and strengthen um, that will be able to carry us beautifully into the future, um, regardless of what's going on. And that doesn't mean that we don't experience difficulty, right? That doesn't mean we stop experiencing challenges and we don't get angry or impatient or sad or you know, any of those human emotions that are part of life, right? But this type of quality of um, this foundational happiness allows us to better weather those fluctuations of emotions um, to the point where maybe we don't get carried away by them. We don't, we don't get sucked under by them or be really overwhelmed by them, but we're able to take good care of them. We're able to take good care of ourselves amid those and not be overwhelmed and not be totally deflated and lost in those emotions. The third third one, the third counter-teaching to the obstacles, um, and this is a, this is sort of a, there's, there's a a short phrase here that I would suggest that you write down, that you remember, you write it down, and you post it somewhere where you're likely to see it on the daily as sort of a life guide on your path, and it's, the, and it's this. There is no such thing as an insignificant moment. There is no such thing as an insignificant moment. Everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do makes a difference every single time. That means also that everything that we don't think, everything we don't do, everything we don't say also makes a difference every single time. Everything takes practice. So if we are living what we would consider a well-contented life, we're able to generate qualities of joy and kindness and understanding and love and connection, that takes practice. We build that ourselves. If we are living a life that is full of despair and sorrow and anger and worry, anxiety, um, it may not seem like this, but that also takes practice. We invest time and energy into creating whatever type of life we have currently. Yeah. Our quality of life is up to us, and everything takes practice. Mm. So our, our voice of negative bias, being steeped in this, this negative bias, is such that negative bias, it's so strong. There's such an incredible force behind it. Again, individually, collectively, like we're born into this, right, biologically. Um, it's such that negative bias likes to give more street cred to suffering. Yeah, and it likes to discredit anything that does not serve to in- promote its agenda. Yeah, 
So when, when you start talking about uh, qualities of joy and ease, um, starting talking about this true happiness, our negative bias is like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, that sounds nice and all, but that's not really, it's kind of fakey. Yeah, like true happiness, I think it's kind of fake. Um, it likes to, uh, you know, to discredit that. Um, and, and it's important that we are aware of that because otherwise we have a tendency to listen to that negative bias and think that it's, that it's a true, real thing that's happening. Yeah, and so we also discredit happiness. We, we discredit or undervalue these qualities of being as something that's important to develop, right? Hmm. I recently came across um, uh, a Chinese Buddhist saying in a book by Noah Levine called The Heart of the Revolution. And real briefly, if you're not familiar with Noah Levine, um, he wrote Dharma Punks and has created sort of his own sect of Buddhism called Against the Stream. And he does a lot of, uh, he's written a lot of great books, um, does a lot of recovery work with addiction centers based in Buddhism. And, and so I came across this saying, and it, it says, life is made up of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And then Noah writes, true happiness is not dependent on life feeling good or being fun. True happiness comes through living in harmony with the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of life. So again, in the analogy of the garden, right, where we're really used to looking at the, the 10,000 sorrows, the 10,000 weeds uh, in the garden of life, and our ability to, to be in touch with the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 flowers that are in the garden of life also, um, our tendency towards that may be very undernourished, may be very weak. And so that's why we need to devote our, some attention to watering seeds of positive bias. Um, so why is this important? Why is it important to develop and strengthen positive bias in our lives? Strengthening positive bias is what will allow us to stay in balance and harmony with the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Yeah. It's what will allow us to engage more skillfully and beneficially with the world around us. It's what will um, allow us to be of loving service to others and also is what will help um, create a really good, strong relationship with ourselves, um, being able to strengthen positive bias. Positive bias, growing that in our lives will also help to energize and keep us fueled to continue well into the future. If we have a desire to be an agent of change in whatever capacity that looks like in the world, we need to spend time and energy in watering the seed and growing the seed of positive bias in our lives. Otherwise, we will likely get burnt out and exhausted by the work that we are doing. I have um, come across a variety of people over the years, people who are in their 20s, so young, you know, um, who 
devoted a certain amount of intense energy to something in specific advocacy work, some sort of fighting for some sort of cause, and have already gotten burnt out and exhausted, unable to continue doing that work, already in their 20s, because they were being fueled um, by negative bias. They were only looking in the direction of the 10,000 sorrows. They were not in touch with the 10,000 joys, and we need to be in touch with that to stay energized and fueled. Otherwise, we, we have nothing left to give. Eventually, we will run out of steam, right? We'll run out of energy. We'll become exhausted and depleted if we don't have anything coming back in to nourish us and support us, yeah. So it's especially important if we have a motivation and desire to be an agent of change in the world that we water the seed of positive bias that we strengthen that capacity within us. Mm. So what does that mean? How do we do that? <laughs> what does that look like? Wouldn't that be great if I just end the talk here? I'm like, go water seeds a positive bias, and you guys are just left to figure that out. And you're like, I don't, I don't really know what that means, Nicole. Um, <laughs> Um, so what, what does that mean? What do we do? What are the things that we can do? What are the steps that we can take? What are the tools that we can use in our daily life to help us do this thing that I'm calling uh, watering the seeds of positive bias? Because that's, you know, it, it's great to hear about it. It's, it. You know, it can be helpful to hear about it. It can be helpful to read about it. We could write poems and sonnets about it. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we need to do it, right? We need to find things that we can do um, actively and intentionally in our life to, to, to move in this direction. So we need to surround ourselves with skillful, beneficial, and kind input. And we also need to engage in skillful, beneficial, and kind output. Now, input and output in terms of what we, you know, what's coming into our consciousness, what we're putting out into the world, it's not separate. But for the sake of this um, talk, I'm going to separate them a little bit in terms of input and output. But please know that they're not separate. They go together. So, you know, what we're putting out is what comes back in. What we're bringing in is what we put out there. They go together. But just for the sort of the ease and flow of the talk, I'm going to separate them a little bit. And so I'm going to start with, um, input. What are the things that we're bringing into our consciousness, right? Uh, primarily through our uh, eye, eye consciousness, our ear consciousness. What are we looking at? What are we listening to? And the first component is media, right? It's a big one. Um, starting to become an, an avid observer of the, the forms of media that we are engaging with and that we're digesting and looking at it as that, what are we digesting? What are we consuming and digesting into our consciousness by way of things like um, the TV shows that we're watching, right? The films that we're watching, um, how we're spending our time online, on the internet, video gaming, social media, um, our books, magazines that we're, that we're reading, all of that, the music that we listen to, right? It's, I'm, I'm using media in this broad paintbrush stroke here to include all those forms. So what are what are we what are we uh, what are we allowing to come in, right? Um, paying attention to that, starting to really figure it out, because a lot of that flies under the radar, and we don't know, 
we don't really know what, what we're digesting on a regular basis and how it affects our moods, how it affects our thoughts, um, how it maybe affects our dreaming at night, depending on what shows we're watching at night before we go to bed, our moods the next day. You know, so really starting to tune in with what input um, is coming in through media, um, what things we're allowing to come in. And this will take time, right? This, this, is an, this, is a, this is something that will take some time because we've built up our current habits um, with media over a lifetime, right? So it's not going to be undone overnight in terms of, you know, if we realize like, oh, wow, I'm watching this one thing and I don't feel good about it, it might take time to, to stop watching whatever that is. I've had that experience where I start to, uh, started becoming really aware of what I was watching and how it affected me, but I was so caught in it that it took me a while to stop watching whatever dark brooding program that was. Um, so it probably won't, you, you won't probably realize it and then just be able to stop it right away. That's not really realistic. So it, it'll probably take some time. Um, so please know that, again, because the habit energy we've built up so long, the momentum is strong, right? It takes time to slow down a train. <laughs> yeah, that's the same. So in conjunction, and this is something I like to mention to a lot of people, as much as possible, um, something that can help us to water the seed of positive bias um, in terms of input is to visit goodnewsnetwork.org. I love this website. I'm a big fan of this website. I mention it to people as much as possible. I've, I've mentioned it in talks before, and I'll continue to mention it because I think it's fantastic. Um, and this is something, um, if I engage with the world news, I go, I use the BBC news. When I go onto world news, if I, if it's an especially heart heavy day for me and engaging with the world news, I will end my news cycle on the goodnewsnetwork.org so that I'm not just connecting with the 10,000 sorrows. I'm also connecting with the 10,000 joys. And the Good News Network, they post articles daily, um, both nationally and globally, of uplifting positive good news. Um, real news stories, um, and it's all good news, <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's always going on, too, and it's really important to know that and be reminded, like, okay, it's not just this all, this all, this stuff is going on, too, the world news, it, it's heavy, it's heart heavy, um, it's hard to engage with, right, but that's going on, that's part of the world, too, so it's not that we want to ignore that, but we, again, we don't want to ignore all the good stuff going on. And there's outlets to engage so that it helps us to remember. Yeah, and so the Good News Network is, uh, and, and like a spokesperson for the Good News Network Network. <clears throat> um, another one in terms of input is that we, it's important that we surround ourselves with uplifting people, with people who are supportive, who are, um, walking the same path as, as we are, going in the same direction, who we get a lot of nourishment from, that we surround ourselves with these people. And we make these people a priority. We spend time with them. We reach out to them. We get together with them. We form relationships with these people. Um, community is vital. Relationship building is, is, is vital um, to our health and wellness. And so surrounding yourself with, with, with good people and people that you love and enjoy spending time with, who are supportive, who are going to meet you where you're at, who are going to love you for who you are, um, just as you are, right? Um, 
it's important to find those people and spend time with those people. Surround yourself with those people. Be in community with those people. We also want to surround ourselves with good messages. We have a lot coming in by way of detrimental messaging through a variety of different means, um, avenues. And so we need to actively surround ourselves with, with um, positive, uplifting messages. And that might be in the form of, you know, you like, there's a certain quote you like, you want to print it out, post it somewhere where you can see it. Um, in our mindfulness tradition, we have something called gathas, which are mindfulness verses that are short little verses we can post around. Oftentimes they're reminding us to come back to the present moment, reminding us to breathe, to smile, um, to come back to the here and now. You know, posting those messages around us. Um, maybe it's just a smiley face. I have a little smiley face sticker um, post-it thing on my computer, on my laptop, because I get frustrated often when I'm online and doing stuff. And that smile reminds me, like, okay, all right, and I come back to it over, I mean, it's a practice, I, over and over and over again. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, we need those reminders. I need those reminders. I have one in my wallet. I have one on my steering wheel. I have, you know, a gata that I made up that speaks directly for me that I came with my, up with my, for myself because I get frustrated while driving. Uh, I like to say that I'm still an East Coast driver at heart. I was born on the East Coast, and somehow that's still very much alive in me. And so that was one of my biggest practices is while driving. And so that got to, it helps me. Um, and so I surround myself with these, these messages, and that can be helpful. Um, I'll also say that, you know, I hear a lot uh, of times people being really down on social media, right? Like, oh, social media is so negative. Oh, it's terrible. I hate it. It's, you know. Um, and it's I think it's important to know that social media, like anything, can be a tool or a weapon depending on how you use it. Yeah, we have the capacity and the ability to kind of sculpt social media how we want to engage with it. Yeah, so if, it's, if you're finding that it's really negative, there's probably something you can do about that to shift how you're using it. Yeah, so like for instance, I'm on uh, Twitter. And um, my Twitter feed, when I go into my feed, it's like a love fest in there. <laughs> I get so much positive messaging in my Twitter feed because of who I'm following, right? The tweets that are coming from Dharma teachers and meditation teachers and um, organizations like Action for Happiness and My Grateful Life. I mean, it's just filled <laughs> with fantastic messages. And so I leave Twitter feeling like, wow, this is, I feel good, right? That, that, that's a possibility is what I'm saying. There's, there's a way to engage with social media where you're surrounding yourself with positive messages and positive people and, um, uh, and having that be a good source of input that's helping you water seeds of positive bias. That is a potential anyway. Um, so the other, the last one I'll mention in terms of input um, for watering seeds of positive bias, and we're so fortunate in this regard, is that nature is really good medicine. Yeah, we get a lot, we can get a lot of nourishment and energy and support from being in nature. And we have such great access here in Missoula. Um, so many great places that we can visit and get out in and go for hikes too and get on the river. And um, spending time in nature is a great way to help us water seeds of positive bias and having nature be part of our community, our Sangha. Sangha means spiritual community in Buddhism, and nature is part of our Sangha. 
And so getting out and getting in touch, making connection, forming a relationship with nature on a regular basis is a wonderful way to um, water seeds of positive bias. So I'm going to switch now again um, to output in terms of uh, what are the things that we can um, uh, do with our time and energy sort of more of an out, on an output basis um, in, ter in terms of watering seeds of positive bias. The first one, when I started like coming up with ideas and thinking, okay, how do I sculpt this talk? What are the things that I would put in the output column of my list? Um, the first one that came up is one that, um, those of you who know me well, you might be able to guess. Does anyone want to guess what the first one would be that I would come up with? Do you want to guess? Oh, that's pretty good. No, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's, these are great. These are all wonderful. I love that there's more than one. Just smiling. Yeah. Smiling was the first one that came up for me. <laughs> I love that there's more than one answer, though. That was great because that's good news. Um, <laughs> so smiling as a practice, something that we do, um, smiling has a lot of potency in it. And... I'll, I'll tell you that in my experience from, from hearing from other people, smiling is one of the most common ones that, is, uh, that our negative bias likes to slough off right away. <laughs> negative bias is like smiling, mm-mm. No, you, you need to feel like smiling to do that. You know, you really, smiling as a practice, that's really fakey. You know, that's, that's, that's not kosher. You really shouldn't do that. Um, so we have to be aware, again, of this, this voice that kicks up because it may be true and it may not be. We, ha we have to get into relationship with this voice and figuring out if what it's telling us is accurate or not um, because that negative bias will say, yeah, if you don't feel like smiling, you shouldn't do it. But actually, when we smile, there's actually a, there's a, there's a connection to the brain. Yeah, there's, there's pleasure sensors, joy sensors that light up in the brain when we smile whether we mean it or not. <laughs> the brain doesn't know the difference. <laughs> so you don't have to wait till you feel like it um, to smile. And there's a great um, TED Talk that some of you may have seen. It's a few years old, and it's, um, it's a really popular one. It's got like 14 million views by Amy Cuddy, who talks about the power of body language and how it affects how we feel. Um, and it's a great TED Talk. I would highly recommend it. And she, she says that if you feel like you shouldn't be somewhere, fake it. Do it not until you make it, but until you become it. And I really like this, um, this quote from her talk. Um, we don't have to wait till we feel like it to smile more and to practice that as an active, as a tool, using it as a tool. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a lovely quote that I, is one of my favorites, and um, it's that, you know, sometimes joy is the source of your smile, and sometimes smi the smiling is the source of your joy. So it can go both ways, right? Um, I experience over and over again the potency of smiling and how it affects not only my own inner environment, my own inner landscape, but also um, external, my external environment. And I'm reminded of um, 
as, uh, an occasion a few years ago, and I only remember this because I wrote about it and it helped to solidify it in my memory. I don't have a great long-term memory otherwise. Um, but I remember an occasion of where I went to the post office and there was a really long line. And it was one of those times where sometimes I go to the post office and there's a long line and I'm like, never mind. <laughs> it's not important enough. I'll come back later. But this time I needed to be in the line. I needed to get whatever it was I was sending in the mail. And I needed to go in the line to do that. Um, and so I got in this long line at the post office. And I don't know if you know this, but nobody wants to stand in line at the post office. No one thinks that's a good time. <laughs> I'm 100% sure. No one wants to be doing that, right? So, <laughs> so I'm standing in this line, and after a little while, a few minutes, I'm starting to get just really carried away with frustration. Like, I have other things to do. I don't want to be standing in this line. I'm feeling really impatient. And the first thing I realized or I noticed is that how tight my body had gotten. Um, one of the first indicators is, like, when you're, when you're, when you're like, doing this, your, your arms are crossed and you're, like, tucking into yourself, that's a pretty clear indication. And I started being aware of how like tight and tense my body had become. And then I realized that was a trigger. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm really stressed out. Like, <laughs> I'm really impatient. I'm being really impatient right now and feeling a lot of stress about standing in this stupid line and <laughs> internally, you know, fuming about it. And so I realized it because I didn't realize it right away. It took me a couple minutes, a few minutes. And so I realized that, and then once I realized it, I'm like, okay, well, I have a choice now. Now that I realized my state of agitation, I have a choice. I could stay doing that, and that's a pretty good time. <laughs> Everyone loves that state, right? <laughs> or I could practice something different. I have to be in this line, uh, so I can either, it could be a bad time, or it, you know, it could be a not bad time. Um, so the first thing I did is I started smiling to myself, just really lightly, just a, a gentle smile on my face. And immediately I noticed an effect of doing that. Immediately I noticed that I was able to start breathing a little deeper and a little slower. Uh, my breath started calming down, slowing down. Um, and after a little while of that, I tuned into my fellow line mates realized, and had that realization like, you know what, no one wants to be here. <laughs> It's not just about me and my impatience and frustration, right? Like, no one wants to be here. So maybe if I can start to lighten up my, you know, energy, maybe that'll help my fellow line mates, too, because they probably have other things they want to be doing, too. Um, they're also feeling agitation. Um, and we're energetic beings. We, we exchange energy all the time. Yeah, so we are not separate. So my agitation fuels the agitation of my fellow line mates. That's very, that, for me, that's very clear. Um, that we share energy. Um, and so I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm doing this for myself because I, I don't want it to stand in line and have it be an awful time, but I, maybe I'll, I'll also do it. Maybe it'll help my fellow line friends here. And um, as is common for me, this is just me. This might not be what you would do. After a few minutes, I was there for a while. This was a long line. Um, it, was, it was moving really slowly. Um, after a little while, I started like, humming and, and slightly dancing. That's a little thing I do. And so <laughs> that might not speak to you. I'm not saying you need to start singing and dancing to yourself. If that makes you uncomfortable, you don't need to do that. But it's something that I do. And so I was like, you know, I was kind of grooving to my own beat here in my, in my, in my head. And 
um, you know, my, my attitude, my, my uh, energy was really lightening up as, as the line crept on. And by the time I got to the front of the line, um, my, my whole experience had changed. Um, I was no longer like itching to get out of there. I was just practicing to be there now at the post office. Um, and I got to, I went up to the um, postal worker, the, the teller became, you know, was available and I went up there and I kind of like sauntered over, I, I don't know, like my energy was such that I was kind of like, you know, just joyfully walking over there. And I got to the counter and, and, the, and the, the man behind the counter was like, it is so nice to see a happy person. He's like, we do not get many of those in here. <laughs> And I was like, oh, gosh, yeah, you're probably right. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, um, you know, we practice for ourselves and we practice for the world. I mean, truly. And so um, I love that example and I love that he said that so I could, you know, like, oh, yeah, it, makes, it, it not only made a difference for me, it made a difference for at least him as well, um, especially as someone who mostly could, gets, you know, a bunch of frustrated people maybe during the day. Um, so smile more. That's, it's, it's a great tool, truly, uh, as, a, as a way to water seeds of positive bias. Um, the next one I want to mention is volunteering. To engage with some sort of volunteering that speaks to us, that calls to us, and doing it on a regular basis. Even if we have a job that we get paid to do that's in a advocacy or... Um, caretaking role or, or community service capacity, volunteering is different. Volunteering is a completely optional use of our time, and there's a lot of um, benefit that we get in doing it regularly, whether that's once a week or twice a month, but something ongoingly. Um, it's a wonderful way to help us water seeds of positive bias. Um, I... Um, I've been in a variety of volunteer roles. My, my longest standing one that I'm currently involved in is I'm a hospice volunteer. And um, I've been a volunteer with hospice for over 15 years. And I meet with patients weekly, um, typically one patient at a time through their end of life process. And they pass away and then I get a different patient. And um, I've heard over and over and over again from other volunteers, and I have the same experience myself, is I get so much more than I, get, than I feel like I give to that. I spend one or two hours a week, um, and gosh, I just receive so much more than the, the one or two hours a week is nothing um, in comparison uh, to what I receive from doing that ongoingly um, and having that being a regular part um, and a regular priority that I make. Um, putting that intentionality into volunteering. And there's so many great nonprofits and organizations and businesses and you know places here in Missoula that we can that we can volunteer with. Um, so I would highly recommend it um, to find some sort of organization or nonprofit again that speaks to you that that you have some sort of calling or connection to. There's so many different ones, so many worthy causes out there. Um, but volunteer, volunteer. Um, it's a great source of uh, output for that. Another one I want to mention is, um, uh, as a tool, is 
making the intention to actively give praise or give gratitude, thanks to not only the people in your life, your loved ones, your close ones, your friends and family, but also to extend that, that praise and gratitude towards businesses, to community services, to organizations. Um, a few years ago, I um, realized that I was someone who was fairly quick to give feedback to a business or an organization when something went awry. Yeah. Um, suddenly I was like, oh, yeah, this, well, this didn't quite go the way I wanted it to go. And I would do it tastefully, right? That's skillful wording. I wouldn't be like, hey, you know, like giving them a hard time. But like I would offer feedback. I would fill out one of the comment cards or I would go online if, you know, if it was something bigger. Um, and I would give feedback in regards to whatever it was that didn't go, quote unquote, right or the way I wanted it to go. And I realized that like, wow, you know, for instance, the good food store, I go there multiple times every week. And I realized that I would fill out comment cards when suddenly a product that I was used to buying wasn't available anymore. And I would let them know. But I didn't let them know the other 400 times prior when that product was available every single time I went there. And I was like, you know, that's interesting. I think I want to work on that. Because <laughs> I'm taking them for granted is what's happening. I'm taking uh, the good food store for granted of having everything that I want 400 times in a row. <laughs> And then the one time something's not available, I'm like, I better fill out a comment card about this. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, dear. Yeah, I don't like that. Uh, I'm going to work on that. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I started doing that a few years ago, um, letting businesses, uh, organizations, you know, community service um, organizations know how much I appreciate them. Like, or, you know, if they have really great staff that I love or whatever it is, like reaching out and letting them know that um, and putting effort into that. Going online and filling out reviews that are like, wow, this guy is great or this company is great or whatever. Um, you know, uh, putting intention and time into that and doing the same thing for the, those people in our lives that we appreciate and we love and we might not tell them enough. Yeah. Those qualities, you know, maybe we have a friend, we really appreciate this one quality in this friend, but we don't really ever tell them about it, or we might take it for granted, right? Um, but making that effort, reaching out, telling the people in your life and the organizations, businesses you frequent that you appreciate them. Um, I think that's a great way to water seeds of positive bias. Mm. So gratitude as an active practice. Um, gratitude and positive bias are like companion plants in the garden, right? Uh, when we water one, we're kind of watering the other one at the same time. And there are things that we can do to actively practice gratitude and not have it just be sort of like this tertiary quality of like, yes, I'm really grateful for this, I'm grateful for, you know, and just kind of have this laundry list that we're not really fully, heartfully engaged with. Um, so finding ways in which to actively get in touch with that heart space when it comes to gratitude. And one of the things that I get a lot of benefit out of and that I often encourage others to do in this capacity is to say a few words of gratitude before eating a meal. Um, so whether you eat two meals a day, three meals a day, before eating a meal, taking just a few seconds to connect with some words of gratitude, some sort of 
some resonance with how grateful you are for the food in front of you. Realizing that a lot of times we take our food for granted and our easy access um, to food. A lot of people don't have enough food to eat. Yeah. And so really getting in touch with gratitude um, for how, how great of a gift it is to have this food available to us. Um, making that time just a few seconds. It doesn't have to be this whole long ceremonious process that takes you an hour, right? Just a few words that you can come up with that speak to you. Um, you can say them internally, externally, you know, whatever resonates for you. But getting in touch with a sense of gratitude before eating a meal. Um, and this, it, I, I like this because it's, it's a relatively easy way to enfold it into our daily life in, these, this, in this specific way because we're, we're eating meals every day um, and it can be a relatively easy way to incorporate it as a practice. Um, and it'll probably take us a little while. If we have, if this speaks to us and we're like, wow, yeah, I would really like to do that. Um, it, it, it'll take a little while to get in the habit of it, but the more you do it, the more you'll keep doing it and it will become a habit. Um, as you continue, it'll, um, it'll grow and strengthen until it becomes second nature. That, um, that's been my experience. Um, so gratitude as an active practice. How am I doing? All right. Um, another one I want to mention, a tool that we can use, may sound really counterintuitive and strange, but it's to actively practice with small discomforts. So I realized um, for myself a number of years ago that if I wasn't able to practice with the small discomforts of life, then I wasn't going to have a great chance of being able to weather the larger ones when they happened. And I, I also, I don't know if you know this, but life is really uncomfortable. <laughs> like a lot of the time. <laughs> Like, discomfort is everywhere, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, if we leave the house, discomfort is probably going to happen sometime soon. <laughs> Maybe even while we're in the house, right? I mean, it, it doesn't have to be necessarily when we leave the house, but <laughs> um, discomfort is part of life. And a lot of us have a very small comfort zone, um, and it can be disabling so that when anything happens outside of that really tightly controlled zone of comfort, we get really off balance and we, we get really mixed up and lost and confused and overwhelmed. Um, so practicing actively weathering small discomforts can help us to build resiliency and help us to widen our comfort zone a little bit to the, so that we can engage with other uh, settings, other people, and, and not be so knocked off kilter. And so what I mean by this, um, working with small discomforts, is so one of the things I started doing a couple of years ago, I, I go to Deer Park Monastery in January for a few weeks each year, the last few years, um, and it's um, spend a few weeks there on retreat. And one of the things I do while I'm there on retreat is in the dining hall, they have these you know, tables, and we spend a lot of time in the dining hall. There's a lot of eating that happens. <laughs> there's three meals a day. We're eating slowly and quietly, so there's a lot of time I feel like we spent in the dining hall on retreats there. Um, and at all the tables, there's folding chairs. There's metal folding chairs. And now most of the folding chairs have pads built into them, like the padded metal folding chairs, so they're more comfortable. And most people seek those chairs out. There are a few standard metal 
folding chairs in the mix, but people strategically avoid those and sit on the padded chairs, right? And I used to do that too. But a couple of years ago, what I started doing is seeking out the metal chairs without the pads on them. And I did that as a practice. I intentionally sought those out to sit in those chairs in order to practice being in a less comfortable chair and enjoying my delicious meal. And that helps me to build, like I said, resiliency, yeah, um, as an active practice. Um, and it, it sounds, when I explain it, it almost sounds like so silly that it's like, oh my God, it's just a folding chair for Pete's sake. Like, it's not the end of the world. You can sit on a metal folding chair for the length of a meal and you'll be fine, Nicole. Um, but prior to that, again, it was just like built in, like, of course you would look for a padded chair to sit in, you know, and there's nothing wrong with sitting in a padded chair. Please understand. I'm not, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I use it as a practice. One of the things that I do um, ongoingly at home is I uh, uh, go around the house without socks on. And I'm someone who gets cold easily. We also have a small house with a wood floor with no insulation underneath the house. So the wood floor is often pretty cold in the winter. And so going around without socks for me means I'm weathering the small discomfort of having my feet be really cold. And that's something I make a choice to do, again, to practice uh, going about whatever I'm doing with cold feet and directing my attention to other things and not focusing on how cold my feet are. And I will say that, you know, I'll, eventually I'll reach critical capacity where I'm like, okay, enough is enough. It's time for some socks, okay? <laughs> so that does happen to me often. <laughs> um, but in short bursts, you know, in directed ways. I will find these small ways um, to work with small discomforts. So we have a tendency, I have found, to really amp up certain teachings and exacerbate them. So I have a, some concern where, where what I'm saying, someone is hearing like, Nicole, I really don't want to go off naked in the woods in the winter and survive for a week. I mean, that's going to be really challenging. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's not a small discomfort. So unless you're my husband who wants to be on that show naked and afraid, <laughs> it's true. Don't go out in the woods in the winter naked and just see how it goes for a week. Okay? That, I, and that's not what I'm advising. <laughs> Start small. Do small things. Use your own levels of discernment and intelligence in figuring out what that means for you. Yeah. Um, that's important. <laughs> um, and the last one I want to mention in terms of uh, uh, output here in regards to watering seeds of positive bias, things that we can do is to prioritize self-care, to prioritize getting enough rest, enough sleep, taking good care of ourselves. This is really important. And it it's often gets put at the very bottom of our list of priorities. Um, and something that we might not see as an element of self-care, which, which I uh, do, is uh, meditating regularly as an act of self-care. There's a lot of qualities that we're developing while sitting in meditation that we might not think about. Um, feeling um, qualities of, of ease and contentment. and uh, all, there's, there's so much that goes into uh, the fruits of the practice of meditation. So meditating regularly and prioritizing self-care in the form of rest and getting enough sleep and downtime. Yeah. 
uh, we have a tendency to be overactive, uh, over-involved in things, and that depletes our energy. So we need ways to restore ourselves. We need to prioritize self-care. Um, and when I say meditation regularly, if you don't have a practice of meditating on your own, I, I like to make sure that, um, to let people know, I encourage people to start really small with two or three or maybe five minutes of sitting, setting a timer for two or three or five minutes at the most, starting there, Monday through Friday, take the weekends off, like start small, the, con the consistency in which you sit is more important than the length of time for which you sit for, especially at the start. And you'll find that if you keep going and you're diligent in your practice, you'll probably find that you'll want to increase your time slowly as, as your practice goes on with regularly sitting in meditation. Um, but meditation is a great form of self-care. Yeah, we might not look at it like that, but I do. It is for me. Yeah, Starting my day with meditation is um, one of the best ways that I know to set my intention for the day and point myself in the direction I want to be going. Yeah. Um, so at this point, I would like to have a bell, please. Thank you. So I recently came across a snippet from an article from Psychology Today that was um, from an article dated um, from June of 2003. And it was an article about um, specifically focusing on why certain romantic relationships had longevity and certain ones led to divorce. But so it says the magic ratio is five to one. As long as there was five times as much positive feeling and interaction between husband and wife as there was negative, researchers found that marriage was likely to be stable over time. In contrast, those couples who were heading for divorce were doing far too little on the positive side to compensate for the growing negativity between them. Other researchers have found the same results in other spheres of our life. It is the frequency of small positive acts that matter most in a ratio of about five to one. Occasional big positive experiences, say a birthday bash, are nice, but they don't make the necessary impact on our brains to override the tilt to negativity. It takes frequent small positive experiences to tip the scale towards happiness. Five to one. Wow. Yeah. Um, so please, um, I hope that you can find some of the tools that I have mentioned um, helpful, that you'll want to start using them, pick them up and use them actively in your daily life to start uh, getting us in touch with the 10,000 joys, with starting to uh, balance out uh, our tilt <laughs> towards negativity and the negative bias. Please don't wait until you feel like doing these, picking up these tools and using them to use them. Because the chances are, if you wait to feel like it, death will probably come first. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um, 
and again, paying attention to whether the voice that kicks up for you, that negative bias voice, if that's a voice that's worth listening to, if it's beneficial to listen to it, um, really investigating what that voice is, is, is saying and whether it's skillful or not and, and beneficial to your situation. Um, because again, the, the, that negative bias, it, it's really tricky and it likes to speak in these honeyed tones uh, and dissuade us from uh, generating these other qualities, again, that don't help to further its own agenda of keeping us directed in the um, negative bias in the direction of the 10,000 sorrows. Um, negative bias tends to keep uh, all the pri our priorities list sort of topsy-turvy, where the priorities uh, of self-care, uh, generating qualities of ease and joy, they're at the bottom of the list. Negative bias situates those at the bottom of the list. And we need to work on strengthening our positive bias so that we're switching that list so that um, we have priorita pri we're prioritizing other things on top, such as being in community, um, uh, uh, generating feelings of understanding and love and connection, brotherhood and sisterhood, yeah, self-care. Joy, yeah. So I am nearing the end here. We're in the home stretch. And um, I have, I contemplated for a long while whether to end the talk in the way that I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, ultimately have decided to do so. And um, I'm going to do a spoken word piece. And it's a piece that um, I just wrote very recently. It's a new piece. Um, and the reason I uh, thought a lot about whether or not to do this piece is that there's some energy. There's a charge. There's a uh, veracity in it that is going to shake up the energy a little bit of what I've already just laid the groundwork for over this last hour. But I've determined that that's not necessarily a bad thing which is why I've decided to do this piece. And I did not write it with any intention of having it be incorporated into this talk, um, but it pairs very nicely, I think. Um, so, um, so I'm going to do this piece, and I, um, it's mostly memorized. <laughs> and it's called Direction for the People, and I'm going to stand up because I need that energy to do it. Uh, this is... Uh, it's called Direction for the People, and um, especially if, if you've seen me do spoken word before, because there's a performance sort of quality to it, you might be tempted to clap afterwards. Please don't clap. Um, we, <laughs> uh, we will, uh, when I'm finished, um, I'll let Melissa know to, to give us the sound of the bell, and then... Um, We'll just kind of situate ourselves in a, th a few breaths. And then I do have one final thing that I want to read before we, before we close here tonight. And I have the piece just in case I forget the words. So again, this, this is called Direction for the People. And it's sort of a, it's a call to action, which is why there, it, kinds of, it builds up into a certain energy, a charged energy. Yeah. Um, there's fuel in it. Mm. Sweet people, please listen. 
Now is the time to get out of your own way. Stop holding yourself back, reducing your worth as though you were somehow not enough. Now is the time to stay claiming the powers invested and bestowed to you. The powers you've unintentionally unacquainted yourself with like ease and joy and unencumbered kindness. There is no merit in hiding in the tiny box of self. Emerge just as you are, without footnotes indicating where the exceptions, carefully constructed excuses and exclusions lie. Now is the time to unglue yourself from your own pockets of thought where self is all that matters. Now is the time to bust open wide your heart and your mind to include all beings both near and far away. Continue to care well for yourself. Yes, but do not stop there. Tend to the matters of your dwelling place, only so much that it propels you to spread love to others. Now is a time when individualism must give way to the collective. We are being called to action, and we do not and cannot exist by ourselves alone. Be invested in the lives of your people. Show up to their parties and gatherings. Keep track of their birthdays and text them when the time comes that you're happy they were born. What are you waiting for? For Pete's sake, life is short. It's the people, your people that matter most. Make the effort as though there were no other time than right now to connect. How is it that we are equipped with such intelligence and yet remain so incredibly dumb when it comes to relationships? We keep ourselves at bay, then wonder why we feel disconnected as though we're the job of others to satiate our undisclosed needs. Reach out to your people. Say hello, tell them you love them. In this day and age, it'll take you two seconds. Ask them how they are and be sure you really want to know. Self-absorption is the rampant plague of our time. Do whatever it takes to look up and away from your own so-called busy life and out into the world that scares you. The level in which you extend yourself from a sense of genuine caring for others determines your quality of life more than anything else. You have the power to make someone else's day brighter by reaching out. Do it. Someone right now is waiting for you. So I want to um, end, as I said, with um, a short snippet from a, a passage by Thich Nhat Hanh on the practice of Sangha. And it comes from the book um, Friends on the Path um, that was put out in 2002. And this passage was actually included as an article in the Lion's Roar magazine. And I did make a few copies of it if you're interested. It's a lovely article on community building and the importance of Sangha. Um, and I can also send you the electronic link if you're interested, please let me know. Um, our modern society creates so many young people without roots. 
They are uprooted from their families and their society. They wander around because they do not have roots. Quite a number of them come from broken families and feel rejected by society. They live on the margins, looking for a home, for something to belong to. They are like trees without roots. For these people, it's very difficult to practice. A tree without roots cannot absorb anything. It cannot survive. Even if they practice intensively for 10 years, it's very hard for them to be transformed if they remain an island, if they cannot establish a link with other people. Our civilization, our culture, has been characterized by individualism. The individual wants to be free from the society, free from the family. The individual does not think he or she needs to take refuge in the family or in society and thinks that he or she can be happy without a sangha. That is why we do not have solidity, we do not have harmony, we do not have the communication that we so need. The practice is therefore to grow some roots. The Sangha is not a place to hide in order to avoid your responsibilities. The Sangha is a place to practice for the transformation and the healing of self and society. When you are strong, you can be there in order to help society. If your society is in trouble, if your family is broken, if your church is no longer capable of providing you a spiritual life, then you work to take refuge in the Sangha so that you can restore your strength, your understanding, your compassion, your confidence. And then in turn, you can use that strength, understanding, and compassion to rebuild your family and society, to renew your church, to restore communication and harmony. This can only be done as a community, not as an individual, but as a Sangha. In order, to, in order for us to develop some roots, we need the kind of environment that can help us become rooted. A Sangha is not a community of practice in which each person is an island, unable to communicate with each other. This is not a true Sangha. No healing or transformation will result from such a Sangha. A true Sangha should be like a family in which there is a spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. There is a lot of suffering, yes, and we have to embrace all the suffering. But to get strong, we also need to touch the positive elements. And when we are strong, we can embrace the suffering in us and all around us. If we see a group of people living mindfully, capable of smiling, of loving, we gain confidence in our future. When we practice mindful breathing, smiling, resting, walking, and working, then we become a positive element in society, and we will inspire confidence all around us. This is the way to avoid letting despair overwhelm us. It is also the way to help the younger generation so that they do not lose hope. It is very important that we live our daily life in such a way that demonstrates that a future is possible. Can we have three sounds, please?